Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mekaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us for episode 476 with Ryan Berman. Ryan is going to talk about how to find the courage to make some changes. So you'll learn one, the three elements of the courage equation. Two, one simple trick to boost your courage. And three, how to convince your boss to make a courageous change. So if you'd like to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, it's at allsaboutyourjob.com slash app 476 or in your podcast playing app, expand the episode notes or description to click it in right there with some fewer taps. But if you do visit awesomeatyourjob.com, I might recommend you check out the Gold Nugget email list, which gives you summary wisdom from Ryan and the 475 guests who've come before him in a quick email you can read in about three minutes and access to the vault of all of these summary insights. That's the Gold Nuggets at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Ryan's story. Ryan Berman is the founder of Courageous, a change consultancy that develops courage brands and trains companies how to operationalize courage through Courage Bootcamp. He spent a career developing meaningful stories for household brands, including Caesars Entertainment, Major League Baseball, New Era, Subway, and UNICEF. And he believes that courage is the ultimate competitive advantage for any willing business being, that's us, or brand. Ryan Berman used the courage methodology detailed in his book to launch his own courage brand called Sock Problems, a charitable sock company that socks, get it? A double meaning there. There are things you wear on your feet, but you also like punch them, right? That socks different problems in the world. Big thanks to Ryan for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Ryan. Ryan, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. How's it going? Oh, it's going well. It's going well. Well, uh, we're going to talk about courage a lot, and I want to start us off by hearing about a time that you had to dig deep to find some professional courage, and what happened? Yeah, I think that's like a really fair question <laughs> and a good place well, to start. You. you know, I actually talk about right now being like, I'm in it. You know, the, the irony here is when you write a book about courage, you kind of have to live it. So I'm in it right now. I actually, I don't know how much of my story that, you know, but I was running a 70 person creative agency. And to be very honest, I felt I was the bigger we got, the less happy I became. And mm -hmm. I got further and further away from the things that I was most passionate about, which was doing the work. And so the irony here is that I wrote this book to position that company and 
they pretty much gave me the courage to fire myself and to start over. And so that's, I'm in it right now where I'm actually back. I mean, I'm passionate about what I'm doing, but you go from having all these resources to a startup. And when I describe courageous, which is more of like a special forces, like reinvention company, where we help companies reinvent themselves. I'm back. I feel like I'm, I'm back living the premise of the book. And as terrifying as it is, I'm also much happier. Well, so that's cool. So then the courage there was, are you going to take that leap and depart from reliable uh, income and all that sort of thing? Yeah, but there's, it's more than that. I mean, I never thought I would be a guy with the method and here I am. You know, you go through this thousand day listening tour and I still can't explain why you know, people at Apple and Google and Method, Domino's let me into their lives. It wasn't like I paid them and it wasn't like they were clients and, and the leaders of these companies let me in. And I was fascinated by how some of the biggest companies on the planet were also the ones that were the most agile, which doesn't seem to make sense. And so the more I got to dissect those companies and realized how important being aligned with the values of the company and the leaders were. And when I really looked back at like the problems that we had set up in our, in my last company, it just, it just set me up to be ineffective at the level that I wanted to be effective. And it doesn't mean like my way was the right way all the time or my two partners, it was their, their way or the highway, just in order for me to scale and change. And I think if we're not working on our tomorrow, if we're not working on sustained relevance, what are you really working on? And so when I looked at it, it was like, okay, how do I set up a company really to be calculated with our courage, but help us stay ahead of the curve of everybody else? And when I really looked at that method, it made it easy for me to leap or easier. I mean, it's never easy, but easier to leap because it just wasn't aligned with who I was and what my values were. Understood. Well, thank you. And, and so can you tell us if we're kind of zooming into the a typical quote unquote professional who is working a job, how is courage helpful for them? Like, where are some of the key ways that we can chicken out to our detriment? So, first of all, I think we have the wrong idea, or some people have the wrong idea what courage is. So, I almost wonder if it makes more sense to share. Like, when you look at the dictionary definition of courage, the dictionary definition is the ability to do something that frightens you. And imagine devoting a hearty amount of your time exploring the topic that's going into a book and you're vehemently disagreeing <laughs> with the dictionary, by the way, not a great place to be like the last thing I want to do is, is, is to be on the wrong side of the dictionary. But when I looked at that definition, I didn't see any utilitarian value to it. I'm like, how does being frightened really help me in the corporate workplace? So a lot of my early research was just seeing if I could come up with a definition that could help people in corporate unlock their courage and do it in a, in a calculated fashion. And, you know, you go through this, these interviews, I called the interview process, the three B's, like there was the brave, which were like, um, Navy seals and tornado chasers and firefighters, the ER operating chiefs. Like I was really fascinated by that process. They didn't know what was coming through the door, but yet their job is to save lives. Then it was the bullish so leaders at those companies I mentioned, and then the Brainiac was the third B. So just clinical psychologists, Cambridge PhDs, immunologists, just, just to study our brain and the way that we're wired. And I came out the other side with this definition of courage that I think plays well for corporate, which is quite algebraic. It's, it's just, it's knowledge plus faith plus action equals courage. And 
you know, look in business, you're never going to have every snippet of knowledge you need to make a call. And by the way, data is not knowledge data. Data is a means to knowledge, but it still takes those synthesizers to look at the data to get to your knowledge. And you can wait and hope to collect all the knowledge in the world, but you're probably going to get passed from a competitor, which is why we need faith. And when I talk about faith, we're not talking about religion. We're talking about inner belief. What do you feel? Like, what do you really feel? Like, the more your knowledge goes up, hopefully your faith is going up. And then comes the hard part is taking action. And two of three in any direction is not courage. So if I'm listening to this and I'm in a, I'm in a workplace setting and you're working on something that needs courage, and I do think courage is a journey word, meaning you need it for these tough decisions, you know, think about it this way. Like, do you have the knowledge to make a call? Do you feel it's right? And are you taking action on it? So... Knowledge and faith with no action is paralysis. You know, you know what you should do. You feel it's right. And for whatever reason, you can't pull the trigger. Faith and action with no knowledge is reckless. So I think some people think, you know, that, that jumping without a parachute, that's one of my six courage myths, by the way. And I think that's that definition, faith and action without knowledge. And then knowledge and action without faith. Like if you're dumb on the inside and you're going through the motions and you're working on a project, I mean, you don't feel any like friction whatsoever or, or any little voice inside going, this is a little crazy. My sense is it's knowledge plus action without faith is status quo. You know, you're working on safe. When your idea hits the market and it's you're not there to defend it, it's just going to blend in with the thousands of other messages or ideas in the market. So it has to be all three, knowledge plus faith plus action equals courage. And that's how you know you're onto something. And so what's intriguing there is like, it's almost like if, if there's not a degree of, I don't know about this, then it's, there's less, I don't know, juice, opportunity, differentiation power in that thing that you're up to. Yeah. It's like, if you don't feel just that little voice going, this is a little crazy, you know, this is, this is crazy. Or is this, or, oh my gosh, we're going to get fired if we do this. These are unemotional data points, actually, that you're, you're actually on the right path to doing something courageous that's going to break through. And, you know, I come out of the courageous idea space. So I always always say, you're not trying to make a courageous idea that when people see it the first time, they're like, wow, you want a courageous idea when someone sees it the eighth time, it's like, gosh, I wish I did that. And that's sort of the tell of a, of a courageous concept. So can you give us a few examples here of, of some courageous concepts that kind of fit this bill? Yeah. I mean, for your listeners out West, one of the things we helped Paris, which is a casino, you know, you think, oh, casino, like how, where's this going? Uh, and all of our research showed that people looked at it as a destination, but what if we could actually turn that destination into a real destination, a city? And so we actually came up with the concept of Funner, Funner, California. And how awesome would it be if we made a real live city? And the good news about Harris in Southern California is it's on sacred land. So we actually went to the, the council of the tribe with our the leadership team at Harris. And that just tells you the level of trust we had with the leadership team and convinced them to change the property to Funner, California. So literally the proximity of the property is now a real legal city called Funner. And once they, we got the smiles on the face of the team, well, if you're going to have a city, you have to have a mayor, right? Because like, what city doesn't have a mayor? So who would be the perfect mayor of Funner, California? Our first mayor was Mayor Hoff, Mayor David Hasselhoff. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And so next thing you know, our commercials were with Mr. Hasselhoff, I mean, Mayor Hoff, who of course had keys to the city and rules to his city. And the irony here is not only did it move the needle for their business, 
But when you talk about holistic change, this was an example of once we got it right on the outside, we then started to talk about, well, what about behind the curtain at the company, the employees? How would the employees of Funner behave if there were boroughs? You know, what should a pit boss look like in Funner, California? You know, it's not Funner, a, a pit boss in a suit with his arms crossed trying to take your money. Mm-hmm. So we started to like take this concept of Funner and really blow it out inside and outside. And I think the that's the big idea here is like, how do you come up with ideas there is no curtain anymore because if there's a curtain between internal and external, you've got a problem. And I think Funner was a great example of them having the courage to go, we are a destination. Let's let's stand for Funner. And once that was their marketing communication, then we started to work inside to make the organization more Funner in all directions. That's cool. Yes. And, and that is kind of different. You know, so, so I hear what you're saying with regard to that, that faith and bit. And but at the same time that it, there's distinction there, which is kind of meaningfully unique in, in terms of uh, the innovation and, and it being appealing to folks like, oh, I, I don't want to go to the one that's uh, less fun. Right, right exactly. <laughs> I want to go to the one that's fun. Yeah, let's go to funner. Yeah, I think we actually <laughs> called off, we signed off, like it's not a word, it's a place, you know, because some people are like, funner is not a word. And so the big insight for me also, and permission to, to give a quick shameless plug on the book, but, you know, the, the true insight was every single time in my career where we had presented the most courageous idea and our partners chose them, their return on courage was higher and their staffs were happier because sometimes you'd present multiple ideas. Every time we'd present the safer idea or our partners went with the safer idea, the return on courage wasn't even half. And and by the way, our staff was, was less than happy. They just, they knew it wasn't going to work at the level that it could. So so you have this really courageous idea that that makes sense for the business, by the way. Next thing you know, you're talking about like pure, true reinvention. You know, we weren't just reinventing their communication. We were reinventing their culture. We were reinventing new innovation opportunities for them. Oh, sorry. But you say you're comparing the return on courage values. What's what's the numerator, the denominator here of this formula? For return on courage? Yeah. Well, again, it's less algebraic, <laughs> you know, than the first time around. But I think the number one is that you actually have an, an evolving relevant business that's sidestepping stasis or death. Um, the return on courage is like you're back into a relevant position. You're, you're building internal believers and external believers and you're, you're building your courage muscle, which breeds more courage, which keeps you ahead of your competition. Ultimately it's about reinvention. So helping these companies reinvent themselves and stay relevant. Oh, right. But I, I think you said that when you took the the bolder path, the return on courage was like more than double that of the the safer path. What is the number we're talking about? That's yeah, I don't have like the actual EBITDA number for here, you know. But I, to me, almost every single time we've actually had a client pick the courageous idea, and I, you know, obviously we're playing off ROCs, how you maximize your ROI. But I actually, I don't have like a like lock me down number on, oh, the, every time you do this, it'll be 8x or 4x or 10x. I don't have, I wish I had more time. Maybe that's something we could explore. Oh, but it was more than double, you said. Oh, yeah. There's no question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's no question. Cool. All right. Well, so that's encouraging right there. You know, I think that, that's a, a shot in the arm, a boost to the faith uh, right there. 
uh, in terms of, of thinking, oh, okay, well, this is, this might be a little nuts, but, you know, Ryan said that when you do something that's a little nuts, that makes sense. And, and there's a lot of energy behind it. You know, more often than not, it's, it's at least, you know, twice as effective. So, so that's pretty cool. You made a reference to some myths when it comes to courage. Could you share a couple of those? Like, like what's the most, you know, pervasive or, or damaging and, and how should we think about these courage myths uh, correctly? Yeah. So there's, there were six courage myths that were sort of uncovered in the interview process. And some of them were obvious, like courage is jumping out of a plane sans parachute or courage is activated on an impulse or that courage can't be taught. And I think those are, are critical, but like when I really think of what's the most debilitating one, I think it's that courage describes other people or courage doesn't have a role in my daily life. And I truly believe if that's what you think, then of course it doesn't have a role in our daily life. But if you looked at courage like a muscle and you could start to build that muscle and train for it, then you start to look for courageous opportunities inside your organization. Uh, we're just not built that way. It's when you talk to uh, leaders of companies, they see courage as a peripheral thing at best. And so to me, that's just an opportunity waiting to be unlocked. And if you can get your whole organization prepped and trained to look for courageous opportunities, I do believe they'll start to appear. And again, if, if courage breeds courage, then you're looking for those moments where we can be courageous to push forward those ideas that really change the game for your company. Yeah, that's cool. Well, let's hear some more myths. You know, again, I think courage is a solo risky journey. I definitely think it's a journey, but I don't think it's as, as risky as people think. And I certainly hope it's not solo. I mean, again, especially in the corporate setting, if we're all dealing with stuff on our own, our own demons on the inside. But to me, that's part of the problem is like, how do we get out of our own way and properly communicate what we're afraid of? There's a famous proverb that fear and courage are brothers that you actually can't get to the courageous choice without first channeling it through fear. But most of us, you know, we suppress those things that we're afraid of versus addressing them. And so part of this is like, let's smoke out what we're afraid of. Let's, let's actually talk about what those fears look like. You know, is there a product fear we've got? What's the perception fear, which is what I would call like the marketing fear. Or then like what personal fears are you bringing to the job? Like, Hey, if I'm, if I pick this idea, am I, am I going to be in an Island all by myself? Am I going to get fired? We we don't talk about this stuff. And so as leaders, my hope is that people will empower their teams to bring this to the forefront. And like I always say, FOMP, fear of missing fear. Like if you don't have a fear, go find one and smoke out that fear and then start to shrink it down. Well, yeah, let's get into a little bit of the the how that occurs. So let's say you, you zeroed in on a fear. How do you go about doing the shrinking of it? Yeah, so... Like I mentioned a little bit earlier, I never thought I'd be a guy with a method, and here I am. So what I wanted to do was was almost take the courage out of courage and give people the tools they need to, to make faster decision-making, but do so in a calculated way. So if you're the audience has an opportunity in the book, Return on Courage, the, the back half of the book is the how. It's like, how do you actually know which knowledge to follow, how to build internal and external faith, and then where to take action? And the back of the book is basically the five steps to becoming what I call a courage brand. And there's a price. There's a price of becoming a courage brand, and price is an acronym. It stands for prioritize, rally, identify, commit, and execute. And prioritize is prioritize through values. So it's almost going all the way back to the beginning and really looking at the values of the company. And unfortunately, most of us have like, like the values are on a wall somewhere. They're collecting dust in an employee manual, but they're not really being operationalized and activated. Or, or maybe a company has 
nine values or 11 values. And I, I can just speak for myself that like, I can barely remember four. <laughs> so right. if I'm the leader of a company and I've got a thousand people working for me, how do I make this clean and simple, have less values, have each value be more valuable. And then how am I rewarding my staff on these values? And we say core values are not eye rolls. They're how the exceptional role. And again, this is just for me going out and seeing how these companies, the most relevant companies in the world are, are operating. Now, do, are all of them like playing by these rules? No. Amazon, I think, has 16 values. I'm, that's unfathomable to me, but obviously it's working for them. But mm-hmm. so it starts by like, what are the values of the company? And then if let's say you're just on the team, like, do you actually mirror those values? You know, are you a believer in those values? Which brings us to the second step, which is rally and it's rally believers. And I think in organizations, you even, you even make believers or fake believers. And funny thing about fake believers is they're hidden in your organization. They don't exactly wear a t-shirt that says fake believer. You know, they nod and smile and they collect the paycheck, but deep down, like conviction is dropped. There's the eye rolls and productivity isn't what it could be. And so I really do believe that belief is the ultimate currency in an organization. So when people believe they're in and when people don't believe they're out and that comes straight down to leadership. So that leadership team is responsible for creating believers. It starts with the values. And then again, are you even making believers? Are you caring about your team? Are you, you know, I think there's four ways to make a believer, right? There's a respecting makes believers. Caring makes believers. I always say repeating makes believers, which is really annoying sometimes for the leadership team, but you need to be playing off the same playbook and say the same thing over and over again. And then seeing is believing. So if you say something and your staff doesn't see something, that's a problem, right? If you say something, they better see something. And again, like it's like these two steps are organizational health steps. It's, it's as simple as galvanizing your people and creating conviction and the number one problem that I see today is this misalignment between leadership and the next generation workforce where the leadership team can't wrap their heads around why you don't want to stick around for 30 years for a watch. And the <laughs> next generation is like, I don't, I don't need a watch. I have a watch on my phone. Like I'm like, I need skills. I need to be challenged. <laughs> well, yeah, that's my take is like, cause you're going to fire me as soon as uh, there's a downturn. Right. You know? And so there's this recalibration that's needed. Both sides need to understand each other. And that means talking about it. And like you said, like, Hey, if I speak up, am I going to get fired? Okay. That's what we just, that's a personal fear that needs to be discussed. It should be discussed. We don't discuss it. So again, I think these two steps are just about organizational health. It's about finding people with conviction that have the right intention that are, you know, on the metaphorical rocket ship. And then we move into the eye, which is identify fears And the way I try to break down fears is looking at industry fears. What's the industry fear for your vertical? Like what could take down the entire industry? Are you the industry fear or do you have one? You know, imagine going to an offsite and thinking through these things. And by the way, this concept only came up because I was so frustrated with SWAT. You know, remember this strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. And the more times I did that, my strength ended up on my opportunity and my weakness also ended up on my opportunity and my weakness also ended up on my threats. And so I just wanted to come up with a better way to SWAT, which has somehow survived as the standard for the last six decades. And so I think the, an audit of fear is a better way to SWAT where you can get really clear on what could take your vertical down or what could take 
where's the problems with your product or which is product fears or service fears. Now, like I said, perception fears, which is marketing. And again, if you don't know what could take you down, you can't put a plan in place. You're reacting. And usually it's a little too late by the time the thing comes and gets you. So the idea is to smoke out what could take your business down or take your vertical down. And then you have a decision to make. And if you want to double down, invest in those ideas or not. Mm-hmm. The C is commit to a purpose, whether, you know, again, I think this is a hard thing for current leadership teams to recognize, but you know, the next generation workforce believes that we have an obligation as a business to be purpose-driven, to make the world better, not just to make money. And so, I mean, I think there was a study where 50% of millennials felt that way, that the point of business was to make the world better, not just to make money. So if I'm a leader, you know, you can even roll your eyes at that or just sort of accept the obligation that comes with being a business leader. And so that means committing to an authentic purpose, you know, a truthful purpose. And, you know, Simon Sinek has spent so much of his career playing in the space. I agree with him that we got to find our why. I think the only sort of add on is now I think you need to have a rally cry in that why. What's the rally cry? I mean, how and why are people going to stick around? You look at a company like SpaceX. And there's not a ton of proof that they're going to be successful on their rally cry purpose, right? Which is life on another planet. But if you work there, you're committed. You'll give 20 hours a day to push that boulder up the mountain on what you're trying to achieve. And I know not every company can be SpaceX, but you've got to find like that rally cry. I mean, look at Method Soap, you know, that soap company and their rally cry and their why was the people against dirty. And what I love about it is, you know, they had a clear enemy that they chose to take down, which was dirty. Are you are you for clean or are you for dirty? Right? The people against dirty. By the way, I think they had a hundred million in annual sales at Target. And mm-hmm. it's a, it's soap. It's a commodity. So what I love about it is it doesn't matter if you're a commodity or a rocket ship. You can find a purpose and get clear on that purpose and galvanize people behind it. And then um finally this we get down to the E of price which is execute your action. So, you know, knowledge, faith, and action, right? It's go time on the execute your action side. And again, it just depends on what type of action you're you're jumping into. But the book talks about, it's a little bit of a choose your own adventure on, you know, are you reinventing your product? Are you reinventing your story? Or are you reinventing um, like a new offering? And again, this is the hard part. The hard part is you know what to do and you feel it's right. And how do you actually execute on it? Yeah, I want to zero in on some of the values pieces here, because I I think you're right that a lot of organizations, they have values. Maybe there's nine, maybe there's 16, but they're, they're not really alive in the sense that they're just sort of hanging out on some materials uh, in, in a file cabinet or on some walls. So could you maybe give us some examples of, you know, company value and how that, that gets lived for real? Because I, I think a lot of listeners might find themselves as like, you know, I don't think I could recite our company values and I don't think uh, any of them are leaping to mind as I, as I look at how we do business. Yeah. I mean, again, I think this is, it goes all the way back to the basics, right? You would think that we would honor the values of the company. And the problem I think is many companies are honoring the founder's values, which may not mirror what the next generation demands or, or what you demand of that next generation workforce. Because to me, that's what values were, were made for. They were supposed to be guardrails to help you make decisions to drive behavior. And if you have multiple offices and thousands of people, they all should be playing off the same 
playbook. So, you know, one company that comes to mind is Zappos. They do have 10 values, but their number one value is deliver wow through service. The way that comes to life, I mean, from the second you walk into their office, and yes, it is wall art, but I just love this idea that they have on the wall, we're a service company that happens to sell blank. You know, mm-hmm. and so I love that fact. Like they can, anything can go in there and what they're selling, they see themselves as a customer service company first. It doesn't matter what your title is. The first month that you're at the office, you're working the call center. Their CEO, Tony Shea, still works the call center during the holidays. And people are sort of floored when he tells them, by the way, I'm Tony Shea, I'm the CEO. Like as he's taking calls, though they don't believe him. Mm-hmm. And so he is operationalizing the values. If they also have a reward system, it's almost like, you know, when you go to, like one of those game rooms where they have, you get your tickets and you can turn your tickets in for, for different mm-hmm. rewards. They have, they basically have that where other people can give you points on service. You can redeem those points for swag. So there's actual science in Jonah Berger's book, Contagious, that says we cannot imitate things we don't see, which is why it's monkey see, monkey do, not monkey hear, monkey do. And so Tony recognizing that, he visualizes this everywhere. You see it everywhere. Everywhere you go in that office, you can't not see something on the wall reminding you of how you're supposed to behave. I think the military also does a really good job of this. So the army does a really good job of this and leadership is their acronym. And they recognize that everybody coming in through their system is coming from different walks of life, right? So, you know, the army also has a massive advantage that they've get they get 16 weeks of boot camp here, right? Where they really get to train their people. And most of us in the workforce, we get like 48 hours and then we get the metaphorical weapon to go out into the workplace and try to do our job. But if you've ever studied Fort Knox, you'll see again, written on the walls are, are is leadership. It's all those values. You get it on the dog tags, you know, they, they ingrain it in you. They're training their people. So I'm seeing there that we skip the E and the A. We got loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, honor, integrity, personal courage. And each of these things means something for real to them. Yeah, it's everything to them. By the way, you know, you talk to people that are army infantrymen, they talk about how those values play off the field as much as on the field for them. So they're making it real. It's, they're operationalizing the values. And so a lot of the work I'm doing now is, you know, you kind of have to go back to the beginning and go, Hey, the, the way you communicate to your team, the way you're driving behavior, it's like, it's like Pavlov. Are you actually rewarding your team off of the values? And often I'll get from a leadership team, like, are we talking about internal values or external values? And my response is, well, that's exactly the problem. There's plenty of words for us to choose from. Let's figure out the ones that work for both and stand there. Oh, that's cool. And I think it just gets you you thinking it right there because, you know, when, when, when these things are real, it stirs the heart. And when they're not, it's just sort of like, sure, you're just trugging along. <laughs> yeah. Again, it's like a CYA value, right? That's where the eye roll comes from mm-hmm. versus are you really using them to, to create the desired result for your company and your people? Yeah, that's good. Well, so I'd love to hear when it comes to sort of individuals, you know, do you recommend any sort of small practices or daily activities to help uh, boost the courageousness or courage, if you will? Yeah, I think it starts by recognizing that it can be for you. So let's assume we're past that willingness part. Look, I think by far the hardest part of this is the action part. It's hard. Like, you know what to do sometimes and you feel it's right. It's just articulating like, okay, we got to, we've got to experiment. We've got to try this. And I love that word, by the way, in the corporate setting of experimenting. Like, how do you help people just experiment? Well, that means you got to create 
a process and a budget for that. So let's say I'm I'm at a company and you're responsible for budgeting. I would actually create an experimental budget. That's like just throw it away. It's a it's a fail budget. It could work, but like you're literally creating little experiments to learn something new. Or let's say it's you're not this isn't about work. Let's say this is at home. That I would create opportunities for experiments. So one of my favorite things that I like to do is I set different calendar invites just for myself. I block off time for myself. Sometimes it's monthly, sometimes it's quarterly, where I'll send myself actionable messages. So you can actually go in and like and you can custom your labels and your alarms. So I actually see things that I need to see in my alarms when they go off that basically trigger action. And I think this is a great use for me for uh, in controlling technology versus technology controlling me. And can you give us some examples for alarms and labels that you're using there? Yeah, so like one of the things that I had to get over when I was writing the book was, okay, we have this thing called our central nervous system that calls all the shots. And like, let's break that down for one sec. So central, at the core of you, system, an operating system, a computer, you're basically a computer, nervous. <laughs> don't say that. Don't think that. Don't try that. Like we're, we're rooted archaic systems that are basically rooted in nervousness and it's hard to shake that. So one of the ideas I had come up with was, Oh, that's interesting. I wonder if I could develop your central courage system to combat the realities of our central nervous system. So price that five-step process is basically building your central courage system. But when I first came up with the idea, I felt like an imposter talking about this thing. And so for me, the way I got over it was by every morning my alarm went off, I saw build strong central courage systems. And by the 12th time I saw it, or the 18th time I saw it, or the 36th time I saw it, it was building that muscle for me that I needed to see to keep me on my path for writing the book. And so now when I say, yeah, I help companies or leaders build strong central courage systems, it's second nature for me. But when I first said it, it was hard for me to say, I'm building that muscle. And so I think that's it. It's creating these these ritualized triggers and using your alarms to do that. So if you wanted to write that blog or start that podcast, I would literally schedule time on your calendar. Maybe it's once a week uh, where you're like, today's the day. And you see that every week at the same time and start to ritualize that process so you can build that muscle. And that makes it easier to do it again and again and again. Very good. Very good. And I'm also curious to get your take if we talked about this kind of on sort of a whole organization level, you know, if an employee finds themselves in the midst of an organization, they want to do some courageous changes, but uh, they're getting resistance from some of their teammates, some of their bosses. Do you have any tips on on how they can get more influential, persuasive and, and, and get things moving, even though their kind of authority is limited? And again, this, I feel like this is going to sound like a promotion for the book, but I think whether it's my book or someone else's book, just by make, like giving something tangible to somebody, when you gift knowledge, so like someone gives my, hey, when you have a minute, can, I thought about you while I was reading this book. Can we talk about it when you're done with it? Gifting knowledge is an easy way to start a conversation. A hard way to start a conversation is, do you have five minutes? And when they don't have five minutes, they're not sure what you really want. And so what I've learned is like just by gifting knowledge and gifting the book to someone is an easy way to, to talk about the process of change. That's one. Another is, and you know, a lot of these statistics are in the book. It's just, I mean, statistics are tough because people don't think that statistics have anything to do with them. They think statistics are for other people, right? But if you actually look at the statistics, you've got 52% of the Fortune 500 since 2000 that are gone. Uh, that number is going to hold. 
John Chambers predicts that 40% of all companies will be dead in seven years. Um, you're going to have 9,000 brands that carousel on and off the Fortune 500 over the next six decades. I, I mean, I, I can do this for a while, right? Like the, the life expectancy of a Fortune 500 brand 50 years ago was 75 years. So once you, you made it onto the list, you could coast for a while. Today, it's anywhere between 12 and 15 years. So the numbers are there. Like, this is the problem. It's like, we have to shake the leaders of the company and go, look, like if we don't change, someone's going to change us whether we like it or not. And I think even you drive change or change drives you. And if you're not careful, change can destroy you. So uh -huh. there are house on fire moments. It's just, how do you shake the leaders? And again, a lot of this content I just mentioned is in the book. It's, you know, I talk about like what's going on here and why is this happening? Why is this business apocalypse really happening? And my hope is to do that is to help companies start to deal with this and have a conversation that it's possible for them to change. Yeah, boy, that, that really hammers it home with regard to you just don't have the option to coast anymore. I mean, you got to take a moment to rejuvenate and refuel and rest and all that stuff. But like, you can't just keep doing what you've been doing for years at a time because the the outside world will not do the same. No, and that's the thing. Like, if you have this iterative strategy, eventually, you know, you will get caught and incremental growth has nothing on exponential growth and somewhere there's probably five guys in a garage that are trying to figure out a way to take you down that's not on your radar yet and they're working 19 hours a day to figure out a way to disrupt your category so it's it's a very real thing that's happening all over the country and beyond well, Brian, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we hear about some of your favorite things. No, man. I mean, I just obviously I love talking about this stuff. I really do enjoy helping companies reinvent. I think courage is a competitive advantage for anyone who chooses to, to learn how to do it. And yeah, I think you can unlock it in your teams. And, you know, a lot of my time right now is being able to go inspire groups and speak at different companies and try to get them to see that courage is for them. And hopefully once they do, then we can start working on a plan for tomorrow. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Yeah, my favorite quote is by a German philosopher named Arthur Schopenhauer, who said, all truth passes through three stages. First, it's ridiculed. Second, it's, wild, it's violently opposed. And third, it's accepted as being self-evident. I just love that because I think that is the process of courage. Like that is the friction that comes with the slog of change where at first it's like, really? Like, no, this is a silly idea too. Uh, absolutely not. And then third, oh, anyone could have come up with Google, right? There's like no period for joy to celebrate. It's just sort of, oh, and by the way, this quote is like uh, evidently 250 years old and still remains true today. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Being able to sit with Steve Wilhite, who was hired by Steve Jobs to run marketing, was probably the my favorite interview. And I, you know, I love all my children equally, but to be able to sit with Steve and hear his story of how he was hired and what sort of test Steve Jobs gave him to make sure he could he wasn't just a yes man, so he would actually stand up to him was pretty fascinating. And how about a favorite book? I would say Essentialism is right there by Greg McCown and just helping you decide what is essential. Because once you know that, it, you've got the clarity you need to stay on the path of what you follow and leave everything else by the wayside. And a favorite tool? Today, it's Slack and Zoom because my company, Courageous, is virtual. So thank goodness for those tools because it allows us to stay connected in real time and see each other. And a favorite habit? Right now, it's the one I explained where I'm setting my alarm with different labels. 
to remind myself of what's important. So these triggers. And so even for me, after studying this for three years, I want to see those triggers. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They repeat it back to you often? You know, and a lot of people seem to be resonating to with the knowledge plus faith plus action equals courage, which is cool. You know, it's like, what do I think about this? How does it make me feel? And what am I going to do about it? If folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Well, if they want to learn more about the book, I would go to returnoncourage.com. And if you wanted to get to know my consulting practice a little more, I'd go to couragebrands.com. And you could probably find me through the returnoncourage.com website. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? If you're unhappy, like you've got to take your life into your control. And I really do think that's sort of the aha moment for me is that it didn't matter we were getting bigger. I was getting less happy. And so same thing, even you drive change or change drives you. And if it's your life, then how are you going to take it by, you know, be in the driver's seat of it and make the most of it and have the courage to, to drive where you want. And again, maybe internally change starts with one and starts with you and then find somebody else that's your real raft mate who can help you make change and then go get another and another and another. And if you like challenges, I'd recommend that. Ryan, thanks for taking the time and, and keep up the good work. Thanks, Pete. Appreciate you having me on. I really dug Ryan's tip there about scheduling time to do something courageous. You hear uh, an alarm, you see it on your calendar because there's some natural resistance. It's easy to do easier things, hard to summon the courage to do courageous things. And so when it's there, you got that trigger, which is cool. And then to think of it in terms of an experiment, it's it's not all in one fell swoop. It's like, we're just going to give this a shot, see how it goes, maybe predefine what we'd call the success or a win and make some baby steps and some progress. So hope you dug that and more from Ryan. The show notes transcript at Ketra are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F476. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. We got Diane DeResta. It's been a while since we talked to someone who has some pro tips on making fantastic presentations and verbal impressions. Well, Diane is bringing it, so I hope to catch you there. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, Check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 